0: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
3: Solidarity forever.
4: And a very good morning, listeners. I am holding the fort here by myself today, but it's a very cold morning out there. I hope you're all rugged up in preparation for the wintry blast we're expecting, according to the Weather Bureau. Now, we have a very uh, full-on program today. We have um, Bahman from Iran, who is a left-wing activist, who is talking about Iran, given that there is enormous discussion about the deal between the U.S. and Iran in relation to nuclear energy and so on. And we, ho- we also have the regulars, um, Marcus Harrington from the NUW, giving us an update on um, the trade union activities. And we have uh, Uncle Kevin, our in-house comedian or satirist, uh, as they call it and finally we're going to have we have an interview with professor nikos papastigliadis who is a professor at melbourne uni who wished to discuss degrees greece with us and that's hot on the media circuits at the moment. Um, And as we speak, there's a um, discussion in the Parliament of Greece in relation to the new proposals that's being put forward or being um, proposed by the Greek government. So we shall see what happens. We shall start off with the interview I heard earlier with uh, Bahman, who wishes uh, not to use his real name, a full name. And it's an interesting historical perspective and leading up to what's happening in Iran. It's done in two parts, so I'm playing the first part today and the next one will be in two weeks. So here we go. Welcome to 3 Bahman and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to Solidarity Breakfast.
5: And thank you for inviting me. My name is Bahman. I'm from Iran.
4: Bahman is um, a left-wing activist. And he has been fighting for democracy in Iran for a very long time. And he, is, he lives in Australia at the moment. Bahman, tell us, um, maybe you can update us on what has been happening in Iran over the last couple of decades, really, because after the 79 revolution, the news had been very sketchy. The only reason Iran's in the news at the moment is because of the possible nuclear bomb building in Iran as per the U.S. So perhaps you can start with that.
5: What, what are your thoughts on that? I want to just bring up a history of the Iran nuclear power ambition which is uh, very shortly. In 1957, a civil nuclear program established under the USA for the Peace Program. In 1974, Shah announced a new measure of the nuclear power to you know, can export gas and oil because mm. until that time, this uh, gas and oil are for internal use. Of, but they wanted to bring this uh, nuclear power to can export. Agreement signed by the Uh, Siemens KWU and Frame Atom, these two German and French companies. Uh, in 1975, started building in the city of Bushehr in south of Iran, which is uh, on the uh, edge of the Persian Gulf. Tehran nuclear research started in 1967, which is that Tehran was mostly based for the humanitarian and also for the medicine. Also Iran signed NPT or Nuclear non proliferation Treaty, signed in 1970. That's a history. During the uh, Iranian revolution in 1979, the new government didn't have a uh, desire or they didn't like to go for, for nuclear power because they had a new ambition and new agenda in, um, in Iran and also in Middle East and also in the entire world. And this, for, 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 for in a short while, they stopped talking about the nuclear power and also they didn't go and didn't spend money. But after, when the, after Iran-Iraq war started, they started, they thinking again, if they have a nuclear power or something with the nuclear, uh, they can, and also chemical, they can um, have an upper hand, especially in uh, Iran-Iraq war and also against Western democracy, or they are the enemy. Uh-huh. For better talk, Iran had a secret for the last 18 years. It had something in some part of Iran, in maybe some military base, or somewhere very uh, remote place under the mountain, help of the Pakistan, and also North Korea, and some other individual people Which they know about the nuclear. One of them was they called they get help from a person uh, from Pakistan. They called the father of the atom. That was actually true. And also with the North Korea, which they had a, a long time uh, ambition as well. That time Iran they didn't have a much uranium or mm. didn't they had a resource, but the Iranian uranium resource is difficult and expensive to develop it. Uh, graduated to the something can be used. And they bought it from South Africa. The first time they bought something from South Africa and almost 850 kilogram uranium. That's why. And then uh, they started to use it. And also they have a they own Iranian engineering in this field. They started and they, uh, they didn't tell anybody. Western had suspicion of Iran have something, some idea, because the political parties like Mujahideen or like other leftist people, they said that Iran doing something. Especially Mujahideen, they had a uh, specific report and also the site of those places. They give it to the IAEA. That's why they, America and the Western allies and the United Nations, they become alert mm. and they started to do something. That's the, a little bit of history of the, you know, what's happening to the, the Shah regime and also what Islamic Republic of Iran. Yeah, what's the agenda about this nuclear power?
4: Hmm. What was the main reason that Iran wants nuclear power?
5: Uh, the first one, they they uh, they for two reasons. They had a two reasons, which is still they say that two reasons. One is for the power, power, to, you know, to, for the electricity. Mm-hmm. They want to, you know, use it for electricity. The second one is for the medicine, to mm-hmm. use it for the in-hospital medicine and oh no, for the research uh, and also, yeah, and also for other research for the agricultural. But they said, mentioned they never have a, a, a military Ambition for the nuclear power, which is it wasn't true. They, in my mind, they had something to make something as well. Even some of the last presidents say we we have something, and the world will be surprised when they announce that. And that's why Western power they suspicious very suspicious and <laughs> was true and yeah.
4: So where where are they getting uranium uh, from now? Because they're initially they bought from South Africa. So where, where are they sourcing it from now?
5: Uh, no, because they uh, they Iran have those resources in two provinces, mm-hmm. especially in Yaz provinces and the Kerman provinces, mm-hmm. which is the most of the iron ore uranium. And box it and those things are there. Coal and everything, a lot of them there. Mm. They found the uranium there, which is that time America knew that one. Oh. The Shah was knew that one, but because too expensive to to dig it out. Yep. But this the new regime, the Islamic Republic of Iran, they didn't. They had a lot of money, especially last decade. But because of the oil price up, yep, they had a lot of money. And they went and and they themselves, they dig it from the Iranian soil. So they've got their own supply. Yeah, from their own supply.
4: Okay. So what are the problems now facing Iran? Because the U.S. are after them to make a deal. I don't think either country wants to go to war from what I've read so far. What is your opinion of, of the state of this negotiation that's going on?
5: It's not good to go, you know, when any of them, any of the party talking about a war. Mm. That's the last option, which is a not good op- option yeah, to me. Of course. If they can reach the agreement, yeah, is a better better solution. Because um because we saw what's happened to when Iraq. Yes. We saw saw what's happened to whole North Africa, Middle East, Afghanistan, if these Mm, things. Iraq. Yeah, that's the result of the war. It's Mm. devastating. All the people, how Mm. many people, homeless, Mm -hmm. got killed, you know, Mm. um, refugee, asylum, everywhere. People are, you know, millions of people died by the result of war. If another one, Iran is the most populated country in the Middle East, the last since 78 million people. Is mean, now is maybe more. That's two years ago. Sure. There'd be
4: refugees coming into Iran as well, wouldn't
5: there? Of course, because now refugees, they are from Afghanistan, Iran. Yes. From Iraq and Iran. Yeah. And also from Syria. Yeah. And maybe coming, who's come, who knows, maybe they come from Yemen or yeah. from... The, and also if this 78 million, if the war started, what happening to this one? The scale of the death will go much, much higher than Iraq... Or Syria or Afghanistan because Iraq has that time only my twenty two twenty three million people. Yes, when they start war uh, yes. two thousand three. But now we're talking about seventy eight million eighty million. Afghanistan only seventeen million. That's very it's huge. Huge. Uh, yeah. yeah, huge. And you know, human disaster absolutely. will will, ha- will happen. Yes.
4: This. So, what do the people think about what's going on at the moment? I mean, there are a lot of young people in Iran. In fact, the majority of the population in Iran are very young people between the ages of. I think 18 and 28 or something. So there are a vast majority of young people there. And they wouldn't have gone through the revolution in 79. So what is the experience of those people at the moment and how much support does the Iranian government have in this sort of semi-confrontation with the US?
5: I mean, 50% of the Iranian is under 25. It's very young. They they actually like to sign the agreement and not go into war. Because they now the consequences of this, if not signing the not agreement, that that probably the war, which is um, n- none of them desire both parties, not Iran and also not. Western ally. Yes, they don't want it. But when there is no sign, probably Western will. They will push for the war, which at the moment Israel pushed for war. Saudi Arabia pushing for that one.
4: Yes, that's the yeah. other 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 party in the Middle East, isn't it? What what is
5: Israel's role? Israel, they don't want it at all. They don't want the agreement. They they don't want it at all
4: because they, they have nuclear nuclear um, ability, but they don't admit to it. And the US doesn't push for it. It's just pushing Iran on it, which is always. What the U.S. does it harasses the so-called Muslim states.
5: Uh, yeah, that's uh, in Middle East the only country has a nuclear power uh, atomic bomb is just Israel. As we know, is um, America they always supporting that one because Israel and Islamic Republic of Iran they are enemy of each other. They don't want to go to you know Western and Iran going to the a peace solution Mm. or agreement and they become together because one is a political one Uh, another one economic as well another one is is a bit religious as well the religious is mostly because of the Iranian regime is as Shia sect of the Islam and the, the rest one is of except um, Iraq and is not maybe half of the population of the Iraq is Shia. The, the rest is uh, also Sunni. And there, which is Saudi Arabia, the Sunni uh, population in Islam, mm. they are they don't want it because uh, and also uh, economic because they can't. You know, they is for survival of Israel as well. Mm. How is survival? Because if these Muslim countries all gather in each other, who knows, they thinking there's another war started, you know. Mm. Go, they think of the, the 1967 and 1970 and those things. And the, this, the, this Islamic war, they, again, they're attacking the, uh, Israel. Mm. But just this time, I, don't, I think this is the world changed. Yes. The opinion of the world changed. I it's, hope so. Yeah, it's different. <laughs> Yes,, I think it's different because if we go to you know the democratic view i 'm not talking about those very Islamic and fundamentalist people they still they they, they think yeah to get rid of Israel yeah, but for the new generation they 're not thinking like this one mm. for the democratic people, for those those after democracy they are all they are uh, after the you know the all of human being, and we are. F- we are connected to each other. Yes, religions or politics—they are shouldn't divide us. They are, I is mean, Israelis safe. They, mm. you know, they have a right to, to, to exist. You know, as a as a human being. So, is that a
4: prevailing view of the Iranian youth today?
5: Uh, yes, towards
4: Palestine. What about the Palestinians?
5: Uh, is Iranian young? They they actually they like they say we don't have a Israel is not our enemy. American people not our enemy. Mm. Western people not our enemy. Yep. We are with them. They are and they are with us. They are the same as we. Now, the only thing is make us you know separated from each other is a politics. Play politics in the governments around the world and also in the media and those things, we, because because they they know they suffering from this separation between the countries. This you know now is a mass unemployed in Iran. People are running from Iran, going out nearly between five to six million of Iranian people now in living outside of Iran. they in all parts of the world.
4: What is the view of the Iranian people in general about the Palestinians? Because the Palestinians are really suffering in that area because of Israel. So I'm just wondering how that fits in with what you've just said.
5: Well, the Iranian uh, young people, they are not against the people of Palestine. They are against this politics play. It mean, Palestine people, they become a football between the Israel government, Iranian government, and also the Western government. These are suffering. Hmm. It's not just the Palestine people. They are, of course, they are under enormous pressure. Hmm. They they're dying, they go into prison, they get tortured. You know, they, they don't have a right. They are a second class citizen in Israel as a as a as a people of the Israel. They are people of that, that, that land. Mm. But now the second thing is mean apartheid in full scale exists in Israel because of this. It's not just the Palestine people. Even those Jewish people coming from Ethiopia, from yes. the Africa, from the yeah, Eritrea.
4: That's a, a phenomenon, isn't it?
5: That's it. Yeah, yeah. even they are Jewish but still are they living at second-class citizen. They are not allowed. Racism is very high. Race is very, Because they're black. Is because Africa. they're black. That, yeah. And exactly happening with the Palestine people because yes. they are uh, Muslim. It means most of the... Half of the population of them... Israel is mostly, you know, the Arab people, mm-hmm. Arabic-speaking, Muslim. Mm-hmm. Some of them is not Muslim. Even mm-hmm. they are Jewish but speak Arabic. There is a lot of Christ, Christian people there. Only those who are called Zionist government, or they are in a power which is uh, Netanyahu representative of that one, they are very, have a very extreme view about uh, these things. And that's why Iranian young people, they have, no, uh, they have no problem with the Palestinian people.
4: Okay, now I just wonder if we could um, perhaps go to the, the situation for workers in Iran, trade unions and so on. Um, how, how are they faring? Are they allowed to exist and, and, and conduct their affairs fairly? What's happening there?
5: The workers' movement is even going to the 19th centuries or early 20th centuries. Oh, dear. Yes, and it was very powerful because of, uh, if I'm telling that, that's um, the revolution 1905 in Russia, 1905, they had a lot of um, effect on Iranian because we are our neighbour and a lot of uh, effect on, uh, uh, on Iranian workers. Yeah. And also for the leftists, yes. for the people, because um, <clears throat> a lot of these people from Iran, workers from Iran, they was in Russia, especially the city of Baku, was because that was oil field there. And they work in the oil field in there. And when they they had a idea, because that time the the Social Democratic Party of the uh, Russia, which is uh, the Trotsky and Lenin. Yes. And there was... Uh, uh, the the
4: conference. There was a conference there, wasn't yeah, it? Conf-
5: yeah, and what? was because the leader, they got a lot of things, the bright idea. Yes. And they came back to Iran. And they started... You know, going to the provinces, to the cities, to the, the workers' places, and they established the movement of the workers in Iran. Mm. And even those people, when they come back from their, in, uh, that area in Russia, they established the first Communist Party of Iran. The first time they called uh, Adalat, and then after a few months they changed the Communist Party of Iran. And this one is the result of that one, that from nine, even going 90 is nearly more than 100 years. Uh, that one. The first um, union was established in Iran, it was the printing and the publishing industry hmm. in Tehran hmm. was in nineteen o six and then the bakeries and then the shoemakers hmm. okay. and then also the other people you know they they came they they, they started to make a union, yes, but it was a short while because the new government toppled them they worked under, under underground underground
4: was that like that under the shah
5: this was under the the Another dynasty. Yes, it's called Qajar dynasty, mm-hmm. and then the Qajar dynasty was toppled by the Shah, mm-hmm. the 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 Raza Shah, mm-hmm. and Reza Shah was m- much brutal than the yes. the the last one. And this because that time English had a little a lot of influence, England or United United Kingdom. United Kingdom called. They had a lot of. Uh, Influence in Iran yes. and the army was in Iran and and uh, most of the Iran was under the south and west and uh, only the center was you know, and also from the north Russia was invaded Iran. Uh, then uh, Shah did a lot of damage into the, this um, workers movement. Yes. And then uh, the, his son, which Mohammad Reza Shah, followed the, the same uh, path. But anyway, the workers never, you know, never choked, never, you know, set back. Mm. They come back, uh, they come back and fighting mm. and get stronger and stronger. Yep. And after that one, uh, I came, we came to the, this 1979 revolution. 1979 revolution was mostly done by the workers mm. and the leftist people and the young people, which is, they are bright, We had a... Most they mostly from the they had education universities uh, schools high school and this one that's uh, very affecting on the uh, because the plenty rally and uh, marching in the city but didn't go until when the uh, workers came and especially the oil and gas and petroleum they came especially from uh, Abadan Tehran Shiraz Tabriz and Isfahan and these are when they came. They uh, had ultimatum. For they had some, you know, demand. If they demand uh, didn't achieve, they will shut down the entire uh, petroleum industry, which they did. When they did, suddenly in one night, the Shah toppled. And uh, is the regime gone, and then the new regime come. That was called we called the 1979, and then the new regime. It was a open atmosphere in Iran for almost two to three years, 1979 to 1982. There is a lot of new party, especially leftist party or democratic party, established. And then um, the workers they had the right. They a lot of uh, union, uh, workers union working union, uh, syndica, and then also student union, uh, soldier union, and also uh, teachers, everything, a lot of it. And also the, um, the suburbs, controlled by the peoples. They had the committee. There they wasn't a military. There yeah. wasn't any, even a militia, nothing. Because it's all controlled by the people. And this all comes from the by, uh, leftist idea. We have to control ourselves. We have to know how our, our uh, you know, the workers' councils and in front of university universities and there is all of always day and night was they um, talking about the politics, about the economy, about how to do you know do govern the uh, govern the country, and you know the relation between the parties, the relation between the government and the party, the relation between the people, and also uh, even women. They had the... Uh, Women, they had their own uh, union, and you know they some uh, like a syndicate moving in. They own one, not just one in the workplace. Even they own the women's right, right. The, like this one. And uh, a lot of things happening in this that two three years. And and then what happened? And then um, because the new regime, it was. Uh, Capitalists. They didn't like freedom, Yes, especially Iran. They say, oh, if um, Iran going in yes. another communist country, you know, in Iran, we lose the whole world. And that's it. And that's why they, uh, because that just, you know, uh, you know, they was fighting the Russia uh, in the Soviet Union. And then uh, because that time they started war in Afghanistan. Soviet Union came to Afghanistan exactly the same time of mm-hmm. the Iranian revolution, which... What option is better? And they went to the, the Islamic, to the religious. They spoken to Ruhollah Musavi Khomeini, uh, because it was people know him. He was fighting against Shah, talking mm. against Shah, but only both for the Islam, for the, his opinion, for his right, for his what's what's in his mind, but not for the Iranian people. For example, for the first time, he was opposing, the, you know, women have a should not have a hijab 1959 when the Shah said all of the women should not wear any hijab this Khomeini was against that one that's why he, he was extreme from the, from the one where he was young um, but they, uh, they talked the America I remember that one um, the five countries America, England, France, German and they were to uh, I, uh, they, they talked to each other and talked and say who can we bring it and they are, they, especially the England or uh, United Kingdom. They was favor of this Khomeini They stop this, uh, uh, you know, this left movement in Iran. Right. And they did it when they come, and they uh, took it. he went from Iraq to s- France, and they spoken to him and they established actually the government there. And then they he came to Iran and he uh, started. And from the first time when they started, they, uh, yeah, they uh, was against the women's right, against the leftists, workers, leftist, yes. workers communists, uh, revolu- uh, communist movement, against democratic movement, even against the everything, which is uh, even from the, from the first day when they came power, they started the, uh, killing, uh, executing the prime minister of the Shah. And also a lot of the minister, milit- uh, the leader of the Shah military, uh, and then uh, the other people started. These people, the Mujahideen, they started. So they slaughter st- of anyone. They who- slaughtered everyone. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, 19, 1982, that was that was the highest peak of the execution, which is sometime is going 400 a day, 350 people killed a day, 300 a day, like this one, always on the paper. That was watched only they announced on the TV and radio and on the paper. And mostly these are from the big city like Tehran, Shiraz. Tabriz, Isfahan, and this one, but not from the villages or not from the little towns, from far away. Nobody knows what's happening today, how many killed in those areas. Yep. That's why they established, they started, you know, and that time, Iraq-Iran was started too. Iraq-Iran Iraq, war was very against, against the people of Iran. And the new regime, Khomeini regime, they used this one as an excuse well, the, that's why Saddam attacking us by the support of America. Mm-hmm. Let's go now, you know, free our country. And a lot of people are worse because a lot of Iranians were nationalists. Yes, of they course. They didn't want, I, you know, foreign interfere to their land, you know, occupied by other one. And they went back to the regime, back to the regime, and they went even it mean there's no wasn't school, mm-hmm. wasn't university, nothing. Everyone so that has
4: mentioned. continued till today.
5: Yeah, they continue until now because, well, the the Iran-Iran-Iraq Iran, Iraq war finished, but still the killing still continue. The people from the economic suffering is continue, hmm. even worsen. Thank you
4: so much you. for talking to 3CR. Yeah,
5: thank you for having me.
4: That was. Bahman from Iran and that's only part one and that's a different historical perspective he's presented and we'll update you in two weeks' time. There's enormous in- union activi- activities are happening in Iran and that will be um, excellent to catch up with um, in two weeks. Now, we um, move on to some announcements, then we'll come to Marcus Harrington who does the trade union section of this um of to breakfast. So here we go.
3: At 17 seconds after 8.15, on the clear, bright morning of August 6, 1945, an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan.
5: August 6 and 9 mark 70 years
2: since the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which claimed more than 200,000 lives. Join the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICAN, for Australia's first ever screening of the extraordinary 1953 film Hiroshima. Thursday, August 6th at 6.30, Collide Theatre, Melbourne. Bookings at icanw.org.au. Proceeds support ICANN's work to ban and eliminate the 15,000 nuclear weapons that exist in the world today. ICANN is a 3CR supporter.
5: Want to support Tricia's diverse and independent voices? Donate to Tricia's annual Radiotone. We still need your support and it's not too late to donate. Donate now by calling 9419 or donate
0: online at tricia.org.au or post us a check or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066.
6: Now listen, the annual Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate is back again for 2015. Two crack teams will debate the proposition that Tony Abbott is the root of all evil. Featuring Kirsty Mack, LEMC, the Minister for Un-Australian Affairs, Morveen Smith, Evan Thompson and Simon Crick. It's a titanic struggle for global comic debating supremacy. Refereed by me, Rod Quantock, I remembered. Friday, 24th of July at the Brunswick Town Hall. Dinner and bar from 6.30. Comedy at 8pm. For bookings, phone 96398622. I'll read that again, but backwards. 22689369. Supporting the radical news source, Green Left Weekly. It's the best comedy debate in the world. See you there.
4: You're listening to 3CR. Solidarity Breakfast, and this is Lalita Chalaya presenting the program for today. We move on to Rank and File Radio by Marcus Harrington, who is a member of the NUW.
7: On today's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 on the AM dial, we will go to part four, the final part in a series with Graham Haynes on the Robe River dispute. Today, Graham discusses the outcome to the dispute back in 1987. Okay, and back in 1986, uh, was it you were you were brought to Melbourne as part of the defend the unions uh, campaign? I
2: was, yes, yes. yeah. Interesting times.
7: A a couple of uh, builders' labourers took you around to different sites around Victoria to discuss uh, the situation that we're going to discuss a bit later in the show.
2: Sure, sure, yes, yes. It was uh, heady times. The the builders' labourers at the time had been uh, deregistered and de-recognised, and uh, their organisers had been told not to pay fines, and uh, which meant that uh, basically, if they were uh, they were caught as a result of outstanding fines and warrants, they they would have been jailed. So. It was uh, it was an interesting time. They hosting me and uh, and putting me up in safe houses and taking me to all sorts of work sites to uh, discuss the Robe River dispute. We were out for some considerable period of time. At the time, the dispute started in Panamanica, and I know that it uh, it, it extended to Cape Lambert, okay. and uh, and you know both both sites basically pulled the pin uh and and it was uh it was a fairly vicious sort of a blue because uh you had uh, a scab workforce operating with staff and other people were being escorted on site in armored vehicles Uh, they had uh, xsas um, security staff employed um yeah it it was a pretty tough time
7: Okay, and then the uh, ACTU, led by Simon Crean, they set up a fighting fund, and uh, at that time, Cry- Crean again arrives in the Pilbara and meets with uh, the CEO, uh, Copeman, to uh, yeah. settle yes. the dispute.
2: Yes, that's right. That's what happened. Uh, Crean was featured in, in a paper with uh, standing next to Charles Copeman, and the West Australian banner had underneath it, uh, Peace in Our Times. and. Uh, huh. You know, as a peace settlement. But uh, as I said earlier, that didn't involve any rank and file at all. And uh, the resolution to that dispute uh, wasn't a resolution at all. It was simply um, resolving that the workers go back to work. Uh, they went back to work, but uh, they didn't secure... The, the working conditions that they had prior to the dispute.
7: Okay. Did uh, Crean meet with the workers to deliver the deal he'd uh, negotiated?
2: Not, not so much. Okay. There was a there was a mass meeting, and uh, and um, and all sorts of uh, you know <laughs> statements that uh, you're still on site, you're still able to work and organise. You'll be able to win these things back. But of course. Um, that wasn't true. Um, the whole union structure on site had been uh, been removed. The delegate structures, they, all the various committees that the delegates were on, okay. that uh, that made gave us some ability to control, to a certain extent, the safety on the job, um, access to. Decent conditions and housing and, and all those things, all those things had gone because we'd been wiped out of all of those committees. Any of the decision-making processes, the the, uh, the union uh, delegates were no longer consulted. They, it was complete control by management. There was there was no consultation with anything they did. They simply would send a memo out, <laughs> and that was it. You, there was no there was no argument, uh, any arguments, and. Uh, the workers
7: would be just sacked. Okay, so following the two phases of the Robe River dispute, um, which we've just uh, gone through, um, what was the end result of the Robe River dispute?
2: Well, the end result was that um, they uh, they took it from about thirteen million tonnes of production per year up up to about twenty million tonne with uh, with more than a third of the workforce gone by natural attrition. Okay, and uh, and uh, and of course the uh, the onlookers, being CRA and BHP, if we're taking more than just a little bit of interest in, in what was going on, so it wasn't long before. They wanted a piece of the action too. Okay. So what, what you've got now is a, basically a de-unionised Pilbara, yep. uh, with that's predominantly got fly-in, fly-out workforces all over it, yep. and um, and uh, subsection four, five, seven visa workers uh, taking up new positions at an ever, ever increasing rate because they're infinitely easier to. Control, exploit, uh, and uh, and take advantage of the situation that these unfortunate people find themselves in.
7: And currently, as we speak, there's an inquiry going on over in Western Australia, government inquiry uh, into suicides in the fly-in, fly-out uh, work arrangement.
2: Oh well, there's some dreadful shifts going down, Marcus. They. You know, workers, are, in many instances, they were required to work 21 days straight and, you know, have a seven-day break. Uh, and they're, they're working 12-hour shifts. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're living in, like, transportable, um, demountable huts, uh, euphemistically called dongers. Uh, and uh, and they, they simply live to work. Uh, they're there for three weeks at a time. And then you see the poor buggers on the on the plane or in the, at the airports with their uh, their high visibility jackets on, and you know yep. they've still got dirt and sweat on their on their shirts and sh- um, work boots, and uh, they they really look like they you know working zombies basically because um, they're looking forward to their seven days off, and then you see the same people getting on the aircraft again to repeat that cycle. Okay. It's not a healthy way to live, and uh, they do it obviously to, to pay off mortgages and, 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 and debts, like most working families have got. Yep. So you don't you don't criticise the workers for that, but uh, but the lifestyle that they live is uh, is a lot less desirable than many might think, okay. and and that's why the suicide rates are so high, industrial uh, accidents are high, and. Uh, and you know, drug and alcohol, other alcohol and other drug problems also arise because of the you know, unnatural working conditions.
7: Okay, so with uh, fly in, fly out, uh, one of the legacies of the, uh, the Robe River um, dispute, and while Mark's Crean and their mates probably promoted the Robe River dispute as a win, uh, how would you describe it in terms of a win or a loss?
2: Well, well, it was definitely a win for the, for the companies and the owners of international capital. Uh, I can't see how losing conditions and having, having uh, some form of industrial democracy where workers have direct input on the job, where workers can uh, affect the outcome wherever there's an accident, fix it up so that the, you, know, you don't get a repeat of that, institute procedures that may in fact restrict work in some circumstances, but nonetheless provides workers with a much safer working environment, okay. with those, all, those sorts of things just disappearing like rain on the Nullarbor Plain, you, uh, you, would, uh, you would have to conclude that the, if there was a victory, it certainly wasn't for the, for, for the workers and their families.
7: OK, with uh, some of those um, things you've just described, I mean, that probably answered the last question about uh, what lessons can workers take out of the roe River dispute?
2: Well, well, the biggest lesson that any worker can is the realisation of the power of their labour. And it's only by negotiating directly with that labour can you achieve the conditions that we've got. And there's no doubt that the... The, the unions, the rank and file in the Pilbara, were able to achieve uh, huge benefits, uh, much improved on what was there in the early 70s, okay. uh, so by the 1980s um, you had a situation where the companies were required to take on apprentices, do training, provide uh, welfare issues, social issues in the community, like building houses and daycare centres and working men's clubs and support sporting facilities, etc. So it okay. wasn't just conditions on the job that uh, people went on strike for. They went on strike to build a better community.
7: And I think that's the fight unions are going to have to take up again in the current time. In-
2: no doubt about that at all, Marcus. Uh, the, uh, the the lessons if, uh, that can be learned out of... Out of, out of um, victories and defeats uh, you can reflect on the things that were won and how you won them you can also reflect on how those things were stolen how you lost them and that's the benefits of uh, going through it and saying well look this is what happened if you want to obey all the laws no matter how unjust they are Mm -hmm. and no matter whose interests the laws are framed then you'll be paralysed yep. in terms of pursuing better wages and conditions. It's as simple as that. The people that made these laws didn't make them for the benefits of workers.
7: Oh, that's right. Our laws they... have never been made in the favour of workers, and it's important that workers uh, do understand this history so we, we can make gains in the future. That's right.
2: That, that's exactly it. That's, that's the benefits that we can learn out of the dispute, that all the things that were won... Were well, one off the back of people being prepared to bargain with their with their the only commodity they've got, and that is their labour, and uh, and that sheer adherence to rules set up that are protecting the interests of capital are not going to reap rewards for workers, and and that uh, sometimes that uh, whilst I have some sympathy for. Uh, the uh, the State Union bodies and the position they might find themselves in, it is nonetheless that there will come a time where if they want to make advances on behalf of their members in terms of wages and conditions and safety on the job and not just become welfare service providers, then they'll have to be prepared to take the system and its laws they'll have to be prepared to take them on. If they don't, you'll end up with another Robe River.
7: OK, uh, thanks for joining us on the program, Graham, to discuss the uh, 1986 uh, Robe River Disputer. It's been a real highlight.
2: Yeah, thanks for for having me. And, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's tremendous that Melbourne's got such a good uh, facility as the... Uh, 3CR radio
7: station to uh, hear those views. Thanks for having me on Marcus. Okay thanks Graham. And that's all we have time for this morning on Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR Tune in next Saturday morning at 8am again. Next Saturday the special guest will be the former leader of the Electrical Trade Union of Victoria, Dean Moyle and he joins us to discuss the accord and the state of the unions today. We leave today's program with Myle addressing a protest against the Australian Building and Construction Commission back in 2008.
3: As a couple of things were to acknowledge about the ABCC. It was created because we operate as unions on the ground too bloody well. Don't forget that. They have nowhere else, no other workers in the industry... Nowhere else in the world are governed by a task force, paid by taxpayers money to stop us looking after wages and conditions and health and safety on the ground. why? Because we're too bloody good at it. Because we had the temerity win a 36 hour week. Because we patent bargain well. Because we run our severance schemes well. Because we organise and we terrify them because we do it well. And we do it within the law. So when you do it well within the law, they change the laws to stop you doing it again and that is a disgrace and let's remember, John Howard may have introduced these laws but it is Kevin Rudd's choice to keep them and that is a disgrace It doesn't matter which government was ahead of the day, we as unions have a role and we have to fight unjust laws and at dawn tomorrow, remember this 154 years ago, ago in the goldfields of Ballarat, brave men and women oppressed by bad laws, stood together to fight for freedom, side by side, and dozens of them lost their lives for doing it. It's the bravest sacrifice in our history that ought to never be lost on us. So when we put the Eureka flag and we fly it proudly, it's on our shirts, it's on there to remind us that our campaign against unjust laws never stops. Our freedom is not going to be compromised.
4: And that was Dean Maal, Fiery Speech. Welcome back um, to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, uh, 8, 855 on your AM dial, and streaming live on the web. Now, we will go to some announcements and be back with Uncle Kevin.
2: <laughs>
0: the Kurdish Workers' Party, otherwise known as the PKK was established in 1984 to fight for the self-determination of Kurdish people in Turkey. It is supported by millions of Kurds and in recent times has played a crucial role in defending Kobani and Rojava against ISIS. Yet the Australian government named the PKK as a prescribed terrorist organisation in 2005 and it has remained on the list ever since. The listing comes up for review in August 2015. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is calling for the PKK to be delisted and are collecting endorsements. You can add yours by going to www.liftthebanonthepkk.org. Australians for Kurdistan Committee in Melbourne is a 3CR
2: supporter. Cult, nothing but a death cult. Islamist death cult. The Islamist death cult. Have a look at Islam in death Australia. Cult death cult. All these mosques the being flag. built. This All is the halal a fund. death cult. To use this All term the money to dignify a death cult. These are the two enemies we're fighting. The communist left and Islam. Because the two are hand in hand.
0: You mean Abbott and Reclaim Australia's anti-Muslim racism go hand in hand. Yeah, and do you know that Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are organising an anti-Muslim rally on Saturday the 18th of July at Parliament House, Melbourne. That's why the campaign against racism and fascism is organising a counter-rally. We're meeting at Parliament House at 10 o'clock so we can get there first, take the steps first and show them that their anti-Muslim hate speech is not welcome in Melbourne or anywhere around Australia. Not now, not ever. If you want updates on the campaign, text, subscribe to 0422726843 to join the updates list. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter.
4: Now, there's an announcement about a Hazari performer. His name is Taki Khan and he's performing at the Drum Theatre on the 25th of July at 8pm. The drum theatre is located at 226 Lonsdale Street, Dandenong. He is a, he was a refugee and he has um, been working on his music since his arrival in um, Australia. He was in the refugee camps and the usual horrible experiences has been through. Now, 62% of Hazaras have been wiped out by the king of Afghanistan and there's ongoing persecution and injustices and violence against them. So if you wish to support this uh, performer, once again, Saturday, 25th of July, 8 p.m. at the Drum Theatre, 226 Lonsdale Street, Dandenong, not the city. And for the tickets, the web address is all the Ws, Theatre one word, dot com, dot au. And if you want to call, it's eight five seven one one triple six. Now, we shall move on to Kevin Healy and the week that was...
6: A weak Solidarity Bricky Team listener, when our great political leaders met with 40 Terranulius people chosen, who knows how, to represent the non-existent Terranulius people to discuss whether those who were here because of the 1788 first boat people, the non-existent Terranulius people must wish they would had a turn back the boats policy. Anyway, to discuss whether the post-1788 real people should vote to decide whether True Blue he was Terranulius and not true blue Aussie, or whether just maybe there were Terranullius people in then not true blue Aussie, when we've always assumed they were parvenous threatening to take our land, steal our backyards, bludges on the goodness of those who followed the first boat people. I raise this because there is, to use the jargon, a sticking point in these discussions. See, people could just vote to recognise that then not true blue Aussie might just have been occupied by these terra nullius people, put down the pencil, leave the polling booth and feel good. But there's this push to go further, to also vote to remove racial discrimination, racist laws in the Constitution to ensure terrenuous non-people cannot be discriminated against. Outlawing sensible laws to assist these non-people, like intervention or even, heaven forbid, prevent 2% of the population representing most of the prison population. This parliamentary committee reported, the race question does have to be dealt with if the change is to be more than symbolic. Now, some long-haired commie greenie wooden work and iron simpletons might think that's a no-brainer. Just vote to outlaw legal racial discrimination. But as the sensible centre people point out, it's never that simple. Take Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the boss's parliamentary secretary for Terranillius Affairs, Alan Fudge the Facts, who said banning racial discrimination, direct quote, would be difficult to achieve. He didn't explain why or how, but we must take Alan's word for it. And he was backed up by no less a humanitarian and anti-discrimination advocate as former Minister for Concentration Camp's Razor Wire and Sink the Boats and now Minister for Social Insecurity Scuttled them more less, son, who said the process needs to continue to be very, very careful. If it goes too far, it has no chance of succeeding and banning racism would be going too far scuttle them look some of my best friends are not racist but i simply warn that we need to be very very careful endorsing his leader's view that we must consult and consult and consult so we get it right recognizing terra people is the right thing to do the right thing to do but this banning racism bit needs a lot more consideration a lot more consideration and Allen and scuttle them and tiny were backed up by former socialist party national supremo warren Mundun them in a terra person who represents all terra non-people just ask him who told Lord Rupert of Wapping's unbiased, objective, paid telly news a constitutional guarantee on racial non-discrimination could lead to ongoing legal disputes lasting for hundreds of years. Goodness me, they'd have to get a very young judge to ensure she or he sees it out. Banning racism was a walkabout judicial notion that risks taking the debate in the wrong direction. We've got to avoid arguing for the rest of the next 500 to 600 years over what words mean. We've got to keep it very simple. You know, it must be difficult to understand what racism means. Still have to concede one point to Warren. When we're dealing with Alan and them and Tiny and Lord Rupert for that matter, we do have to keep it very simple. With friends like Warren, the non-Terranullius people certainly don't need enemies like the National Congress of True Blue Aussies First People. Who gave them a right to speak on their behalf? They've got Warren and Noel. What more do they need? Anyway, they said changing the clauses that allow race discrimination is really the substance of the referendum and what our people are hoping to see in it what would they know what ingratitude did they hear alan say banning racism would be difficult to achieve scuttle them warning them to be very very careful warren worried we'd spend five to six hundred years arguing over a word so there we are despite the long-haired commie greenies it's just not as simple as saying no to racism On complications, the just-as-naïve Greek people did say no, showing how simple they are. As the International Monetary Profits Fund's Christine Lagarde the Wealthy kept repeating, you can't have a meaningful dialogue with people who don't do what you order them to do. Despite the string of so-called experts on the left of left ABC predicting the yes vote would win overwhelmingly, no guesses who the ABC's interviewees represented, the bloody people got it wrong again. They just can't seem to get democracy right. Despite the great benefits several years of austerity have brought them, well we knew it would because the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all knew it was for their own good and for their own good it's certainly been. The economy has contracted spectacularly, the debt has continued to explode, unemployment is at record levels, pensioners are living below the poverty line and the bloody silly voters voted against years of more of the same good for their own good. Myopiaropolis. some even suggest they never saw a cent or whatever the currency would be a euro of the debt they're asked to undergo a little bit of austerity for for their own good and to show just how envious they are of the great practitioners they argue the money all went to the banks and the wealthy or as German big supremo Angela Merkel complained these selfish Greeks must understand austerity has been good for us every euro of greek debt has generated many many euros of german profit can't the greek people see that she complained the selfish greek people said they had seen that any wonder responsible people so abhor this sort of class hatred perpetuation of class warfare where there is no class warfare apparently at some point all that austerity would stop a contracting economy create jobs help pensioners No idea how, but that's why we have the great practitioners to tell us what's good for us. Back here, and those who want class war where there is no class war, we mentioned last week how evil unions have used their mafia connections to set up innocent, caring, business-class party-responsible people, like poor Amanda Millstone, that left-of-left ABC commentator who has been attempting to guide us to the sensible centre. Well, as the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga mission into evil unions and the ever-threatening the economic order Socialist Party continued its unbiased pursuits with the hanging judge Dyson, no hiding his bias, and his chamber ally, the Crown Prosecutor Jeremy Stolia rights, all orchestrated by Tidy and Team True Blue but no need for a Kanga mission into those caring business class and their party's mafia connections. Although... It gets a bit confusing, which is why I raise this again, because I heard a caring business class party person call for an inquiry into the links between the mafia and the socialist party and the evil unions. He must have read a different report. Back at the King Mission, and I don't recall the caring business class Mafia Connections getting a mention, a line in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media, I might have missed it, but, well, they have more important things to do, like socialist party supremo brackets temporary little Billy shortened ambition being Shorten recall at the Kanga Mission, page after page after page, almost one page alone devoted to the hanging judge's attack on little Billy's credibility. Mr Shorten Ambition, you are not giving my very, very, very close friend, the Crown Prosecutor, the answers we demand you give. Probably have the answers they demand in their final report, although while such matters should not be the subject of a staged witch hunt, primarily aimed at unions going about what unions should be going about, have to say, little Billy did provide them with a fair bit of ammunition. I have spent my whole life fighting for working people. He stated the obvious. I have spent my whole life fighting for working people. And in fighting for working people, obviously I have had to associate with and do deals with, uh, sorry, deal with caring employers. Finally, the Minister for Hayseed and Sheepshit Barnacle also told us he too had fought his guts out for his Hayseed and Sheepshit Party constituency. I totally oppose this big coal mine thingy on prime farmland, Barnacle explained. Although I want to ensure the people I fought for that we have imposed the most stringent environmental conditions. No, it sounds silly, but the most stringent environmental condition would just possibly be to say no. It's always a worry when they say environmental damage will be minimal. Kind of implies there'll be, wait for it, environmental damage. But we are talking about old King Cole. And as Barnacle's Supremo Tidy explained, Barnacle has a right to oppose as long as the mine goes ahead. As long as the mine goes ahead. After all, coal will lift the world out of poverty because there'll be no poverty when there's no world. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Uncle Kevin. Um, Funny man. Brilliant. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that that was the voice of Professor Nikos Papastegades. He's the director of the research unit in public cultures based in the in Melbourne University. He's a professor in the School of Culture and Communication, and today he has offered to discuss the situation in Greece with us. Good morning, Professor Papastegades.
1: Good morning. Good morning. That was great intro. <laughs>
4: Um, our pleasure. Welcome to Thrusia and this is Solidarity Breakfast. And we discuss a lot of political issues in this program, as um, I had uh, indicated. Now, I had posed a couple of questions to you because everybody's talking about the default and the deal. And, and right now, as we are talking, the Greek Parliament's discussing the new proposal that um, Prime Minister Cyprus has put together since the... Um, you know, since Yanis uh, Varoufakis had resigned. Now, there are many other countries that have defaulted. In fact, the latest one is Puerto Rico. I'm just wondering if you could explain this, this phenomenon, because many countries default and there, there's not a ripple in the uh, so-called economy. So what do you think?
1: Well, Greece is in a different situation to other countries who have defaulted. Or, I mean, the constant comparison is to Argentina. And, and, and the suggestion thereby is that by defaulting, you can reboot your own economy, um, you know, revalue your currency, etc., and, and make the competitiveness of your, your society and economy stronger. Now, that sounds in principle like a logical way to go forward, but the reality is Greece has had its economy bound to the European Union's for two decades. And so it's not just that the economy has contracted under these recessionary austerity measures. It was also that the economy was reconfigured quite dramatically during that whole period. So to reboot it now would be a very different situation because the base of the economy has already been contracted. It's not just the amount the economy is producing. What I mean by that is that when Greece joined the European Union, is basically told that your manufacturing sector is no longer competitive and there's no point and the tariffs have gone now and therefore you'll have to focus on three things basically tourism, agriculture and shipping. Now that put the economy in a very precarious space. And now for it to reboot an economy that's so narrow would would and then and move towards its own currency um, would leave it in a very difficult position. It has very little to export, in other words. So I think the the implications of it defaulting and then moving out, moving out of the eurozone, are very very dangerous for Greece. Very very dangerous.
4: So the people expect either way, um, they can expect more austerity.
1: It looks as if the government is now proposing a deal that was very, very close to the one that was being proposed prior to and which caused the, the, the resistance and then led to the no vote. So it doesn't look like we've made much progress at all.
4: Mm. So this this is this brings us to the politics of the whole dynamics that's going on in Europe and across the world, really, because a lot of the people on the left have been criticising the current government, citizen government, for giving to the EU and IMF and so on. And there's also calls. It, 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 there seems to be a split in this in this whole dynamic because in the European Parliament there was the left and the right, so to speak. They welcomed Cyprus to the, um, I think two days ago, yesterday he appeared there to talk to them about the deal that he could possibly put forward. But the left had welcomed him in, with open arms and very warmly. Uh, we saw that on TV. So if that is the case, the countries that have refused to allow Greece uh, bailout are the European countries, and yet there is a substantial proportion who are quite happy for them to have a restructured um, deal. so how does that sit? It seems a bit confusing because they he 's got supporters Greece has supporters among the people
1: yeah. This is true. It is um, rather confusing and very contradictory, and it was very contradictory and very disturbing to see Marie Le Pen jumping with her arms in the air and, and shouting as if she had found her long-lost brother. Yes, um, That was a really weird scene. Um, hard to swallow. Mm. And um, But it, it speaks to the deep contradiction that is in the heart of the European Union, which is the, the, con- the contradiction between national sovereignty and a, and a union. And And that has not been resolved. All all that's happened is that that contradiction has become more and more exposed because Tsipras' party, Syriza, came into being very suddenly and quite dramatically on Mm. the back of the collapse of the PASOK and the New Democracy parties, both of which have been humiliated by the European Union. Mm. So the European Union has already effectively um, instigated regime change at two levels. It's destroyed PASOK completely because... It made them impose austerity measures, which was completely ideologically impossible for that party. New democracy said that they believed in austerity, but then couldn't do it at home either. And they were delegitimized to a large extent, although they haven't been as eviscerated and decimated as, as PASOK has. But they still have been turned into a shambles. So right now, there's no opposition party in Greece but the important thing to bear in mind is that Syriza didn't come about as just another major party it came about as a coalition of a lot of different sectional groups and small parties and more importantly it came into being on the groundswell of this political and populist process and populist i don't mean in, the, in that reactionary way i mean it in the genuine sense that the people were involved in 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 Democratic processes for demands for greater participation and calls for greater accountability and greater transparency. Now, when that groundswell moved its way through and, and formed a political uh, representative body like Citizen, which is, like I said, a.
4: Oh, we lost him there. Oh, I'll just have to go get him back. The lines got cut off. Apologies for that. I will get back to him.
0: So, five grannies.
7: Started the embassy in my sorry day. They've all been part of Redfern and the community since they died.
4: Hello, um, Nikos? Yes. Yes, hi. Sorry about that. I think the hotel line, the extension got cut off there. Uh, apologies to the listeners. Now, in the middle of talking about um, the coalition of smaller parties yes. that formed Syriza.
1: Yes, so the interesting thing about Syriza was that it, 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 it wasn't just a typical political party that formed in, in, an, in an attempt to grab power. It was this coalition and it did reflect and emerge from incredibly interesting grassroots activism and popular demands for new forms of political representation through the micro organisations around Chintagama Square, where people all took turns to speak and there was ballots called for, where, for people who could take the stage to all these demands for greater transparency and accountability. So in the heart of Syriza is this new kind of political process. And therefore, the referendum has to be seen as something that is not just a, you know, an imposition on the people, as some people complain, that, oh, my God, we voted for this party and now they want our opinion again. We gave them the job and now they don't want to do it. There wasn't the point that like, you hand over power to a party three to five years this party came into being on the on the back of demand that people wanted to be more engaged and more consulted and more involved in the political process now the effect of that referendum seems pretty poor at the moment and um, and it seems like the European elite rather than responding to this with some recognition of 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 the of the legitimacy of its of its position, and with some capacity to come back with a, a new response, has dug its heels in even deeper and just says more of the same.
4: Mm. The, the couple of things that strike me is is that one, what is the way out for Syriza in the current situation, especially when the repercussions are going to be. Absolutely phenomenal because we have Spain, Italy, and Portugal waiting in the wings. They too are um, suffering the imposition of austerity by the the IMF and, and the Troika, basically, on them. So, what what could possibly be the solution? Because the left is criticizing Syriza, and the and the right is also criticizing Syriza. So that is. I can't see how so is going to get out of this because politically the capitalist system is in complete control and they're squeezing them at the at the very jugular from what I can see. That's
1: true. That's true. It, it is damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's right. <laughs> no. Because in in Greece the other thing is that um while there was a resounding no vote the other important vote to also bear in mind or popular will is that 80% of the population wants to stay in the european union so that means 80% of the population in one form or another wants to stay within that kind of framework which is largely dominated as a capitalist system and of course they don't not all all of them want all the package of that capitalist system, but they nevertheless want that cultural, social and political structure to remain intact in some form, or at least they want themselves to have a more um, integral place in that system and have the right to help reshape that system to some form. So I think at best the way forward for, for Syria is to be, treated with a lot more dignity and to be seen as a more equal partner in the debate as to what is the ground and what are the terms upon which a member state can participate and shape its own future within that union. So that sounds like a reformist position, and I can see why the hard left is, well, you know, you'll never get your um, um, voice heard. You'll just be ignored and patronised. And then oppressed once again, and and the and the and the hard right in turn says yes, 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 sure, 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 and just does what it what, what it wants to do anyway. So it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. So I don't think CISA has got the option of absolute um, exit from from um, the European Union. And in order to work towards a more radical agenda, if they did that, they'd have to play a longer term game, and and hope that the alternatives could be developed and matured in a more sophisticated way within Greece.
4: Hmm. So the one question that's puzzled me is why Greece sacrificed a drachma? Like, like like England, for example, has kept its pound, didn't go into the euro, although it's part of the European Union. What was the basis of that? And this is obviously an impact because of that. Would that be right? Economically, I mean.
5: Yeah, well,
1: that's, a, that's an argument that... Um, You'd probably be better off having with an economist like my <laughs> friend Yanis Varoufakis. But yes. um, I, I, I agree with you. That was at the beginning of the catastrophe because the rounding up that occurred with the with the conversion from the drachma to the euro was was absolutely ridiculous. You know, all of a sudden things that were worth X amount of drachmas wouldn't suddenly one euro. But the effect was everything doubled overnight and. Um, and it produced a lot of short-term benefits because of land values and subsidies that were coming. The, the increase of land value was just astronomical increase, And so a lot of people benefited it in the short term. And then with, the, with these pouring of subsidies and all this sort of cronyism and, that occurred, people took this sort of sweetener that came with it. But that's what actually got us into this mess that we are and have. Hmm. We now have, you see. It, it, it's true that because of that short-term benefit, people um, did prosper in the short term. And and it led not just to um, the consumerist binge that everyone talks about, but also to what I consider a very interesting way in which that money was spent was that every taxi driver in Greece suddenly could afford to send their daughter to have an MA in, in England. <laughs> okay. So Greece now has one of the highest, most educated youth in in, in the world. Which is an They're advantage. Mas, which is a huge advantage for <laughs> Europe now.
4: Yes. For
1: Europe. Because guess what? There's been a massive brain drain yes. from Greece into other parts of Europe and other parts of the world. Mm. And, um, and and that's another interesting phenomenon is what's happening to this sort of hyper-educated, perfectly fluent in Greek and English, um, and German in many cases, um, new um, educated youth. Mm. Well, you know, the, in the in the in the fifties, when people from Greece came to Australia, Australia was one of three or four choices in the world. They would either go to Canada, uh, South Africa, not so many, but a few, um, United States or Australia. But now there's about a hundred countries in the world that Greeks are emigrating to, hmm. from Singapore to South Korea, from the Gulf States to South America, wherever there's industrialization or new opportunities Greeks are moving to.
4: Yeah, it's a global and, village, and, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and so right now, Germany, once again, is benefiting not from gustarbiters to work in their factories, but from Greek doctors servicing their, their, their patients. And similarly, the British universities are full of Greek academics.
4: Hmm. The key question for me here is the very nature of capitalism. It has to expand and it has to reinvest. Now, in this case, they're caught... It's almost a destructive pathway. If they do what they're doing to Greece, they're not going to get their money back in a hurry because right. Greece doesn't have much money anyway to give back. And especially when they've destroyed the um, industrial base, where are they going to get money from? Tourists are staying away. So the economy is basically dying. And they would not give any relief because one of them said, "If you le- if if you lend somebody money, if they can't repay, you know, repay their their debt, what you do is restructure it so they can pay it back to you in smaller amounts over long term, so you benefit and the country can have a breathing space and recover." But the the, the decisions by the troika puzzles me. I wonder if you you, you can give us a bit of an insight into that sort of thinking.
1: Well, this is what everybody who can count has worked out. <laughs> the decisions of the troika are irrational, ideological, and punitive of the highest moralistic order. Mm. You know, they are simply trying to set an example, rather than rather than gain in a material way. And that example is like, you know, rather cut off my nose and spite my
5: mm. spite
1: my face. Yeah. You know? so th- there is no doubt that that is. What is driving this process? Because it was a purely financial calculation. Every accountant would tell you, every, every lawyer would, would inform you that this is not the way forward. So the fact is, the economy is contracting, unemployment is going up, the potential to regain your money is diminishing every day. So everybody has realised, on an economic term, this: these policies of austerity have backfired. Mm.
4: I mean, that's
1: that's simple. Now, why are they not wanting to sort of work towards debt relief in order to reboot the economy in terms we discussed earlier? Because they're worried of the contagion, not of the economic, but the political one in, in Podem- with Podemos. Of they course, don't want Podemos hmm. to look like that they have a better solution to the problems of Spain and that another party in or another movement may take root in Italy, which has a much higher debt than Greece, four times the debt of Greece. Wow. And um, so if these countries were to sort of also take courage from and follow the example of, of Greece, that's what scares Europe. Mm. In the reality, they could quite comfortably ignore the Greek debt. Yes, and And in a rational way, they would say, okay, in order for us to recoup our debt, we should should stop these policies and work towards new policies that actually build up the infrastructure and reboot and redefine the economic base of Greece.
4: Yes. This bloody-minded approach really is is going to somehow, I hope in a way, um, undo capitalism. But the... The other phenomena that that's interesting is is not just Spain, Italy, and Portugal where they're, they're simmerings, but in 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 England there've been massive marches, despite the fact they elected a conservative Cameron government. There've been massive mm-hmm. marches against austerity. So now that is something I'm trying to come to grips with because they didn't join um, the well they didn't give up their um, what do you call it, their money, I guess, the pound. They're part of the EU. And despite that, their economy has been also impacted hugely and austerity measures are being imposed. How is that different? And, you know, I wonder if you can explain that a little bit. That's an economical question. I don't know if you can answer it. But the political impact is also interesting because a conservative government and yet the people are marching against it.
1: Again, these are the paradoxes of our of our time, um, and this is what made the Greek decision of the no vote so interesting, because the um, um, Great Britain and 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 large parts of, and Scandinavia effectively Denmark, Sweden, Norway, um, Norway, Norway. Yeah. And, and Finland they all kept their currencies yes because they realised that that would undermine their competitiveness and of course. High levels of inflation, as as we've seen in Greece, it undermined its competitive and made rapid inflation in the short term. Now, in in England, at the last election, the the last the cam the Cameron government went into that campaign with a huge fear campaign, saying that the economy is at a knife edge. Who do you trust to? To run it, can you trust the Labour Party? Once again, that whole fear campaign Mm. of the Labour Party will mismanage it, will will bring you into more pain and more strife, etc. And that fear campaign was was so well orchestrated that it knocked out any alternative. And it and it also, I hate to say, taught the Lib Dems the old lesson that if you go to bed with a dog Guess what? You get yes. eaten up. It's not that you wake up with fleas. You get eaten up and yes. um, and they got wiped off the planet again. Mm. And so we have this polarization that's gone on in, in the UK, which has intensified and is now going to intensify even more. And the fear campaign works electorally, but the people in their guts, as you say, know what's going on, but don't have a way of articulating it. And it's interesting how culturally they, were, they, they, they swallowed and beat themselves into the ground at, at the, on polling day. Mm. What I found interesting and, and quite inspiring by the no vote, and I can't say that the political representation that's followed has given me the same level of hope, but mm. nevertheless, during the referendum, there was an incredible moment when one of the protesters said, we are no longer afraid of fear. Yes. And that gave me great hope. Um, because it suggested to me that this fear campaign, which was unrelenting in Greece. because Let's remember, in Greece, even more so than in the UK, the media is totally dominated by the oligarchs. Of course. And, and of the 14 newspapers that were available in every sort of, um, what they call, peripter, or little kiosks in Athens, 12 of them would be declaring and shouting out, vote yes, right, hmm. on their banner page. 12 of them, and at the same time, the, the TV stations, you know, all the free-to-air TV stations except for the national one, we've got the equivalent of the ABC, mm. they're all blaring out yes, you know, unequivocally, mm. and on top of that, you have every European minister and prime minister and Merkel and the, the rest of them threatening the Greek people that if you vote no, you are voting for an exit of the European Union, which was a blatant lie. Of course and as a complete distortion of the problem and an exaggeration of the terms of, of the discussion. Hmm. And so you, in the midst of that campaign, the fact that the Greeks had the temerity to raise up their voice and, and vote no, I thought it was a colossal statement.
4: Absolutely. A very brave of them.
1: And extremely brave. I was so proud of the Greeks at
4: that time. Yes, I think the whole world is. I mean, At least the sensible people are. <laughs> but one last question. Um The way I see it, politically speaking, you've got the whole of Europe basically calling out for a left leadership, something to oppose the Troika or the capitalist representation within Europe. How do you see it?
1: Well, I agree. There there is clearly a moment. and I think what this referendum has expressed is the populist and groundswell demand for a change on the landscape. Hmm. And I genuinely believe that the um, TINA politics, that there's no alternative, has now run its course. Hmm. And clearly, you know, there is a groundswell demand for a different kind of political agency, a different kind of political process. And this demand for greater integrity of the people's voices and involvement at all grassroots levels is something that's going to have to be recognised and built into the European Union if it wants to survive the new phase, and there has to be some radical and imaginative new institution building.
3: Hmm.
1: Otherwise, you know, this perpetuation of these of, of trickle down effects. Oh
4: God, effects yes, or, and that's so boring. The trickle that, down.
1: <laughs> you know, all those false promises, yes. I don't think anyone buys them anymore. That's right. I don't believe it. Anyway, I'm on my way to Greece next week. Oh, wow. Courtesy of the Germans. Thank you very much. The Germans are paying.
4: <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> you got something out of them.
1: <laughs> well, it, 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 there's another interesting experiment that's happening right now, which is worth mentioning, I think, which is that um, every five years, the the art world, I know it's not something you probably talk about on a political program, but the art world has do.
0: Oh, we do. We do.
1: Okay, <laughs> They have a big exhibition in, in a small little town called Castle, Germany, called Documenta. Now, it's the biggest art event of, uh, in, on the, uh, in, the, in the world. And um, it was originally set up in 1955 to show the Eastern Europeans, and East Germany in particular, that the West Germans have got the best and greatest art. And, mm. and it was really to rub the, the art in the, in the face of the Eastern Europeans. Right, because I was on a, his castle was a border town. Anyway, since then it grew and grew and grew. It became more and more um, less and less a, a propaganda exercise for Europe, and more about a sort of thinking about the issues of globalization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, for this iteration of of Documenta, which will happen in two thousand and seventeen, the director was appointed from Poland, Adam Czechnik, and he put forward the proposal of doing an exhibition in Castle but also doing the other half of the exhibition in you name it Athens. Mm. And the title of the of the project will be called Learning from Athens. Mm. So the German taxpayers are paying a huge amount of money for the world's biggest art event to happen in fifty percent in Castle and fifty percent in, in Athens. Athens. And they're <laughs> gonna have to swallow the cultural pill of Learning from Athens.
4: Sounds good. I'll have to, to interview you. <laughs> I'll have to interview you when you come back. You'll be, you'll be so full of news and up-to-date news.
1: So, so I'll be able to get a bit of a on-the-ground experience from that as well.
4: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time and being available to 3 Thank you. Bye. And sorry
1: about the interruption earlier.
4: Oh, bye. <laughs> yes, the total lines are bad. Thank you. Bye, Nikos. Bye-bye. That was Professor Nikos Papastigadis, who is on his way to Germany soon, so we'll get some fresh news when he gets back. You've been listening to uh, Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, and this is Lalitha Chalaya um, saying goodbye. Uh, a of pacific Currents is st- standing in the wings to come in. So hope you all have a good week. Goodbye.